Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. This episode is the second part of our investigation of esoteric Orientalism in antiquity. Episode 9, The Greeks Are Always Children? For the ancient Greeks, the particular customs and laws of different city-states and foreign nations were often explained with reference to the particularly Greek figure of the nomothete. The nomothete, nomothetes, an establisher of institutions, was the person believed to have given each city-state its particular institutions, a kind of founder figure, or if not actually the founder of the city, a radical reformer of some kind who set its institutions in the characteristic form that would become the city's trademark. These figures were normally surrounded by what we would consider mythological stories, but they were, as far as we can tell, usually based on genuine historical people who actually lived. The Spartans had Lycurgus, and for the Athenians, the Nomothete was Solon, who lived from sometime in the middle of the 7th century BCE until the middle of the 6th. He reformed and modernized the Nomoi of the archaic Athenians, Nomoi is a word which we can translate as either laws or customs. If we really want to theorize classical Greek law, we kind of need a definition which embraces both of these ideas. Solon was, by classical times, already a pretty mythological figure. The stories told him about told about him by authors like Herodotus and Plutarch much later are certainly not what we would call historical, but they do tell us a lot about how the Greeks wanted to see themselves and the Athenians in particular. But the story about Solon, which concerns us now, comes from Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus. One of the interlocutors of the dialogue is named Critias. At Timaeus 21e to 22b, Critias narrates a story of a visit by Solon to a particular region in Egypt. The story can be summarized as follows. There's a district in Egypt called the Saitic region, whose chief city, Sais, was founded by the goddess Neit, whom the Greeks call Athena. The Saisians love Athens and claim to be relations of some kind to the Athenians. Solon traveled there and talked with the Egyptian priests who were most learned in ancient lore about their history and discovered that neither he nor the Greeks in general knew anything about ancient history at all. Why? Well, Solon told the priests about the most ancient Greek traditions the story of Foroneus and Niobe, the first humans, and the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha, who survived a universal flood, and then tried to reckon up the amount of years involved to build a chronology of history. So he's going back to the ancient Greek myths about the early people and then trying to figure out how long people have been around on Earth, basically. Then one of the Egyptian priests, an extremely old man, says, O Solon, Solon, you Greeks are always children. There's no such thing as an old Greek. Solon asks what he means, and the priest replies that the Greeks are all young in soul because none of their beliefs are based on ancient traditions, nor are any of their sciences ancient. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and in the Timaeus in general, with serious import for the history of Western esotericism. But for the purposes of this episode, I'd like to single out a particular claim this is the claim that the Greeks are basically Johnny-come-latelys on the scene, and that the Egyptians, with their much older civilization and continuity of tradition, possessed truly ancient sciences. We'll use this passage from Plato as an inspiration for our investigation in this episode, in which I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Firstly, to what degree 
Does Plato's myth here represent the mainstream Greek view of their relations to their more ancient civilized neighbors? Were there dissenting voices in ancient Greece claiming that the Greek tradition was just as ancient, or if not just as ancient, just as good anyway, as the Egyptian or the Mesopotamian or the Phoenician? Or was there actually a consensus that the Greeks were all children and Plato's Egyptian priest is basically right? Secondly, is Plato's Egyptian priest right? Plato is not saying in this passage that the Greeks acquired their sciences from the Egyptians, per se. But this and other passages in Plato can be adduced to show that Plato does at least play with the idea of the Greeks having learned the sciences from their older neighbors. But did they? I should say here, for full disclosure, that as a classicist, I'm reasonably well-placed to assess the first question, but my expertise on things like ancient Mesopotamian science is sadly lacking. So I should say at the outset that I won't actually answer the second question very thoroughly. I'd rather err on the side of caution, especially when dealing with the evidence for Egypt, a land which seems to have given birth to a particularly fertile brand of Orientalism in the West, which has led people to all manner of fantasies, excessive claims, and romantic beliefs throughout the ages. But more on that anon. Firstly, did the ancient Greeks really view themselves as children compared to the Egyptians and other Mediterranean civilizations? Well, the short answer here is yes, but it's a fairly complicated yes, containing some rich and complex detail, so let's explore it a bit. As we saw in the last episode, the highly developed Greek civilization in the classical period was a relatively new affair because of the Aegean civilizational collapse which had occurred between roughly 1200 and 900 BCE. The previous Greek high civilization, known to us as the Mycenaean culture, had seen large cities, extensive overseas trade, the use of writing by the palace bureaucracies, sophisticated bronze working, and so on and so forth. The centuries between 1100 and 900 saw all of this fall apart. A huge drop in population, entire cities abandoned in some cases, collapse of the centralized palace-based economies, a total loss of literacy as far as we can tell, a major downturn in the quality of manufactured goods, evidence of diminished trade, etc. So our classical Greeks had a history of just a couple hundred years, really, where they could look to things like writing, widespread access to trade goods, and extensive city life as typical Greek achievements. And they knew perfectly well that their neighbors in the Near East and Egypt had complex city-based societies going back thousands of years, without a break of the kind that the Aegean had suffered. So we should actually expect the Greeks to consider themselves young as a people. And by and large, they did. And to address all the Greek evidence for this claim, we need to come to grips with Greek Orientalism, concept which we also talked about in the previous episode. And to get a really in-depth take on Greek Orientalism, we need to consider a huge amount of specific evidence. But the picture which emerges is, generally speaking, one of simultaneous fascination and repulsion. The Greeks were proper chauvinists, and they didn't think of their Near Eastern neighbors as their equals, but at the same time they idolized them in certain respects. But there is overall a consensus that peoples like the Egyptians and Mesopotamians were of a more ancient continuity of culture than the Greeks, and as we stressed last time, more ancient to a lot of Greeks meant more excellent in many contexts. We see a lot of arguing about the details, Plutarch, for example, doubts whether Zoroaster is quite as ancient as people say he is, and Porphyry attacks some writings attributed to Zoroaster in his time on the grounds that they're actually contemporary forgeries. But neither author argues that there wasn't a genuinely ancient historical Zoroaster who had some special wisdom. So these are two examples chosen at random from a large and complex debate in Greco-Roman society, but they're the sort of thing that we tend to find. 
What we don't find, to my knowledge, is people asserting that the ancient Mediterranean civilizations weren't really ancient, or weren't more ancient than the Greek civilization. Nor do we hear of Greeks or Romans claiming that the Greeks learned nothing from their more ancient neighbors. Quite the opposite. We generally get the claim that they learned everything from them. Now, we've oversimplified here, and there's a huge scholarly literature on Greek ideas about foreigners, so please explore that for more detailed information. Now, in the last episode, we looked a little bit at the phenomenon of Greek Orientalism in the Classical period, but we concentrated mostly on the idea of ancient barbarian wisdom and sages, which we find in Platonism, because this trope is so important for Western esotericism down the ages. It's worth pointing out here that the specific discourse of the ancient barbarian sage was a particularly Platonist conceit, although it also enjoyed currency more broadly in Greco-Roman society. When we get to Plato himself in the podcast, we'll see the playful use he makes of the argument from authority. He's very fond of stories like that of the Egyptian priests I mentioned earlier. Now, whether or not Plato meant these stories to be taken seriously is a question that should be asked, but which will not get much scholarly agreement. But there's very little doubt that his later readers did so. For a Platonist, then, there was a strong canonical reason for a further layer of Orientalist fascination with the ancient Mediterranean civilizations layered on top of the, the general Greek background, which is that of Platonic precedent. And this is the main reason we can see for the rise of what we've discussed under the rubric of Platonic Orientalism in the last episode. But the ancient barbarian sage is found outside of Platonism as well, so the topos isn't simply a Platonist thing. If we look at classical Greek culture as a whole, however, we find a pretty solid consensus. The ancient barbarian peoples are the source of the sciences, and the Greeks learned them from the barbarians. We have many Greek testimonies that the earliest philosophers also learned at the feet of the ancient sages. Pythagoras and Plato are both attested in late antique sources to have traveled to Egypt and studied with the wise men there. And there's quite a bit of fascinating evidence that the Greeks thought that some of their religious customs were Egyptian in origin. Both of these ideas will be addressed in more detail later in the podcast. For now, though, let's stick to the question of what we might, in modern language, term science and technology. And this brings us to our second main inquiry for this episode. So the Greeks said that they were children, but were they right? First, technology. Here we're on pretty firm ground. I'm no expert on things like the ancient fabrication of tools or metalworking technologies, but the scholarly consensus here is that, as we would expect, technologies cross cultural boundaries as a regular thing. No one wants to claim that the Greeks invented the use of iron, for example, since the Iron Age began demonstrably earlier in the Near East, and the Greeks pick up iron later on. The same thing happens for Western Europe as a whole. Later Roman armies were delighted to find that the Celts they were fighting in Western Europe were still using bronze swords. And when the Celts finally did acquire ironworking, even if we don't have direct evidence for how they learned it, it's much more plausible to assume that they simply learned techniques from people who already had them, rather than postulating that they set about inventing them from scratch by a process of trial and error. So this is how technologies travel, by cross-cultural diffusion. And it's also uncontroversial that the most powerful new technology of the classical period, the technology which utterly transformed the society of the classical Greeks, the single most revolutionary tool in their arsenal, no gentle listener, not the making of iron weapons, I refer here of course to the alphabet, came to them from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were a Semitic people of the Levant, the area now encompassed by Lebanon, Israel, and bits of other countries. But the Phoenicians were a bit like the Greeks in that they voyaged all over and set up lots of cities and colonies, so we actually find them all over the Mediterranean region in the classical period. Now, 
All modern European alphabets are descended from the original Phoenician creation, which is where the Greeks got their alphabet as well. So the Greeks claimed that they got the alphabet from the Phoenicians, and modern scholars agree with them. So, alphabet, check. Now, the Greeks adopted this tool for writing, the most versatile and easiest-to-learn way of writing yet invented by humans, and they went on to do amazing things with it, including telling us about how they got it from the Phoenicians. Turning to the sciences, the most relevant to our inquiry are geometry and astronomy astrology. But this episode will try to narrow the focus almost solely to astronomy. Hopefully we can return to geometry and to astrology proper in later episodes. Now, here we are in more difficult territory because the evidence consists not for the most part in stuff that we can dig up, like swords and axes, but in ideas. The Greeks tend to attribute the development of geometry to the Egyptians and of astronomy to the Mesopotamians. So are they right about this as well? As I mentioned, I'm no specialist here. However, I will try to guide the narrative through the main scholarly literature. There are a few broad schools of thought on these subjects. The first school we might call the Hellenophile school, a scholarly approach which dominated classical history in the 19th century. This school sees classical Greece as a rather miraculous story of human greatness. Coming out of a dark age, the Greeks, in a remarkably short time, invented and advanced all the important sciences of antiquity, came up with philosophy, with democracy and other wonderful political forms, and in general civilized the world. This school of thought is long out of fashion, however some of its presuppositions survive in the modern discipline of classics. Most importantly, the idea that when we want to look for the origins of Greek sciences, we need look no further than Greece. When the Greeks tell us that they learned something from, say, the Egyptians, we give them a kindly pat on the head, but we don't take them seriously. Another school of thought might be called the History of Science School, as exemplified by the work of Otto Neugebauer, the Austrian-American scholar of ancient mathematical science who pretty much put the study of this stuff on the map. Neugebauer and the many scholars who've come after him have gone to the original sources. Mesopotamian clay tablets, Egyptian stelae and papyri, Greek manuscripts, and looked at them from the point of view of the exact sciences, crucially of mathematically precise astronomy. We owe to this school the fact that we can say, without a shadow of a doubt, that the Babylonians developed a truly advanced mathematized astronomy with advanced geometric modeling for predicting the movements of the heavenly bodies, extensive tabulations of accurate observations over long periods, and so on and so forth. We'll return to this data a bit further on once we've looked at a final school of thought within ancient history. This is the school which we might generally call the diffusionist school. Heavyweight classical scholars such as Martin West and Walter Burkert have taken the traditional approach of classics, close textual reading and interpretation with an emphasis on accurate dating, augmented by in-depth archaeological work, combined it with expertise in Near Eastern languages and sources, and come to the conclusion that many elements in Greek culture were the product of Near Eastern influence. Both men's work on early Greek religion and mythology in particular draws up a model of common cultic institutions and stories over quite a wide cross-cultural area from the Near East to mainland Greece. And they've pointed to numerous areas where Greek cult, and the mystery cults in particular, seem to have been foreign imports from the Near East. These religious questions will, of course, reoccur later in the course of the podcast. But for now, let's concentrate on astronomy. Now, the Hellenophile position is, as I've mentioned, 
very much out of favor nowadays. And even classicists like myself, with no knowledge of ancient Near Eastern languages and little knowledge of the chronologies or archaeology of the area, are still aware that a lot of cultural borrowing went on in both the Mycenaean period and in the early Classical Age. And with hindsight, this seems obvious. How would the Greeks not take on anything and everything that they could use from their more advanced neighbors? If you're coming out of a dark age and you've got neighbors who are very advanced in a given science, say astronomy, of course you're going to absorb what you can get from them. Take a parallel case. When the Romans went from being kind of a, a pretty tough town in a rough part of Italy to masters of the Mediterranean, they very quickly absorbed all that was useful to them from Greek culture since they immediately saw that the Greeks were more advanced than they were in numerous areas, both scientific and cultural. Now, they also had a lot of contempt for the Greeks. We have lots of examples of Romans making snarky comments about little Greeks. So the mixed feelings which we've seen the Greeks displaying toward their eastern neighbors should not lead us to think that they would have balked at grabbing whatever they could get from them that was of use to them. The diffusionist school has basically won the debate over the Hellenophiles. Though, as we shall see, Hellenophile prejudices die amazingly hard. The Diffusionists have three basic facts on their side. One, the obviousness of their claim, that the rather primitive Greeks will have picked up a lot of things from their more advanced neighbors as they encountered them. Two, the specific evidence contained in the Greek materials, not least of which is the constant Greek claim that this is what happened. And finally, three, the supporting evidence of the history of science school, which points towards diffusion on a massive scale and even tells us a lot of the details. Well then, what does the history of science school of thought have to tell us about what specifically the Greeks did absorb from their neighbors in terms of astronomy? Otto Neugebauer's magisterial history of ancient mathematical astronomy in three volumes looks at the evidence in an overarching way that it had not been attempted before and has set the terms of debate for what came after. His basic finding is that the Babylonians and the Greeks did great things and that the Egyptians did almost nothing. In Babylonia, we have cuneiform tablets as early as 700 BCE, giving tables of observation for the rising and settings of different heavenly bodies, known as ephemerides tablets, as well as sets of arithmetical rules for computations from about 500 BCE, known as procedure texts. The Greeks weren't up to much until the Hellenistic period, which is the later 4th century onwards, so the 300s, in which period, we should remember, Mesopotamia was ruled by Greek speakers, the Seleucid successor state to Alexander the Great's empire, so that we have no trouble in seeing how Mesopotamian ideas about astronomy might have passed to the Greek-speaking world, because the Mesopotamians were now in the Greek-speaking world. Then the Greeks got seriously busy and developed all manner of amazing mathematical solutions to problems of celestial prediction, eclipses, and all that good stuff. It's quite clear now that much of the raw materials of data and theory which the Hellenistic Greeks were using and building upon came from the Near East, that is from the Chaldeans or Babylonians. Now, the ancient Greeks don't draw the line that we do between astronomy and astrology, and Neugebauer is pretty much uninterested in what we would call astrology, so he doesn't tell us much about it. But it's clear that the later Greek use of the term Chaldean to mean simply astrologer-astronomer was well-merited. The Greeks were right to attribute to these people expertise in the sciences of the stars and planets. And as we'll see in later episodes, the Babylonians weren't just using mathematics to understand and predict the movements of the heavenly bodies. They were also doing a lot of what we would call astrology, which is very important for the history of Western esotericism. Now, turning to the Egyptians, Neugebauer claims that they had no advanced astronomical knowledge at all, really. We have no astronomical writings from Egypt before the coming of the Greeks. The star maps, which we find painted on tomb ceilings and that sort of thing, 
are seemingly not meant to be accurate and show knowledge only of a few obvious constellations like Sirius and Orion. The famous Dendera Zodiac dates from the late Ptolemaic period, that is well into the Hellenistic period of Greek occupation. And we know for a fact that the Greeks did amazing things in astronomy in the Hellenistic period. So we thus have every reason to assume that Greek astronomical knowledge was being diffused into Egyptian knowledge. Let's quote Neugebauer here from volume three of his mighty work. Quote, Egypt has no place in a work on the history of mathematical astronomy. Nevertheless, I devote a separate book on the subject in order to draw the reader's attention to its insignificance, which cannot be too strongly emphasized in comparison with the Babylonian and the Greek contribution to the development of scientific astronomy. Now, it's always good to remind ourselves that our evidence from the early periods we're talking about is very patchy and that there's a lot of room for interpretation. That's just the nature of trying to read the historical record of the distant past. But that being said, we really can't be in much doubt that the origins of mathematical astronomy and of mathematical science more generally lie in the Near East. This is especially true when we take into account the fact that Neugebauer's dating is laudably conservative. We actually have a lot of evidence for Near Eastern observations of the heavens going back to around 1200 BCE, full-blown Bronze Age, when the Mycenaean Greeks were having the spot of bother that we alluded to earlier. And this is not mathematized type of material that we find later, but things like detailed star catalogs that show that even the Sumerians were very interested in trying to understand what was going on in the heavens. And the same thing goes for mathematics more generally. As is well known today, the so-called Pythagorean theorem seems to have been known to the Bronze Age Mesopotamian peoples long before Pythagoras came on the scene. The peoples of the region which the Greeks came to know as the Persian state had been at this probably since Sumerian times, and their cumulative work of centuries was what the Greek Hellenistic astronomers based much of their work on. This leaves the question of Egypt. If the Greeks were right that much of their scientific knowledge came from there, why does Neugebauer tell us that the Egyptians were scientific dullards? We'll return to that question in a moment, but now let's stay with our Chaldeans and turn back to the Hellenophile school of thought asking how they came to the conclusion that the Greeks sort of invented all this stuff for themselves through their innate genius. Okay, until the right scholars came along in the 20th century with the right mathematical and linguistic training, we couldn't really appreciate with much precision the debt of the Greeks to their eastern neighbors. Now we can, but still, why ignore pretty much completely the Greeks' own testimony about where they got this stuff? Now things get interesting. Having done our duty and answered a few basic questions about the origins of astronomy, we should treat ourselves to a quick exploration of the interesting story of the modern invention of the ancient Greeks. It's a story about Europe versus the Orient, about pure Aryans versus Semitic races, about democracy versus Oriental despotism. But in essence, it's a story about how our ideological prejudices can cause us to distort even the most obvious evidence beyond recognition. Tempers will run hot as we examine the Fuhrer around Black Athena. In 1987, a scolar named Martin Bernal, a historian based at Cornell University, published the first volume of a huge three-volume work called Black Athena, Afroasiatic Roots of Classical Civilization. Two more volumes followed over the course of about a decade. Bernal's claims are very complex and based on sifting a huge amount of information, so I'm just going to do a summary here which doesn't really sum up his whole work, but I want to look specifically at some of the things which got people really pissed off. First of all, the title, Black Athena. 
Bernal was doing something provocative here, bringing the concept of race into the debate, and specifically bringing the so-called black race into the cradle of so-called white civilization. His actual claim is quite nuanced. He wants to say that the claim implicit in the passage from Plato's Timaeus that we looked at earlier, that the Greeks owed a huge amount to the Egyptians, was in fact true. And the Egyptians were an, a nation, some of whose members could be described as black. We know this, for example, from the huge amounts of paintings which survive from ancient Egypt, which show a whole range of skin tones among the Egyptians, and from the close cultural links between Egypt and Nubia, the civilization on Egypt's southern border, which was pretty black by anyone's definition of what it is to be black. And we know, for example, that there were Nubian dynasties that ruled Egypt for times. So there were black people around, depending on what we mean by black, but this is Bernal's claim. Now, Bernal's subtitle to the first volume of Black Athena is Volume 1, The Fabrication of Ancient Greece. And this is really what I want to concentrate on. This volume involved a critique of what we have called the Hellenophile school of classical scholarship. Bernal makes his case very well here. The weird racialist theories of the 19th century, the kind of stuff which has become really marginal nowadays, but which was totally mainstream back then. Stuff like the idea of a pure Aryan race whose fundamental characteristics were sort of essentially different from those of Semitic peoples. These discourses really influenced the narrative around the Greeks in this period, so that these historians were basically using the Greeks to construct an origin myth for the triumphant white civilizations of Western Europe and America, and so on. We are the white race, we trace our lineage to the ancient Greeks, who are therefore ipso facto pure white Aryans, and obviously pure white Aryans would not have learned anything fundamental from a bunch of Semites. Uh, we should point out here that speakers of Semitic languages included the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Phoenicians, and of course, the Jews. While the Egyptians spoke language from a related language group to the Semitic. A lot of 19th century racists had to think about the Jews, of course, and some folks still do. So you see the problem. Everyone starts immediately thinking about Adolf Hitler. So Bernal pissed off a lot of classical scholars with the implication that the Hellenophile narrative of history meant that classicists were all a bunch of Hitlers. Now, of course, that's not actually what Bernal wanted to say, but nevertheless, camps were quickly formed, as seems to happen whenever someone mentions the word race, and certain classical scholars rushed to attack Bernal's work on a number of fronts, sometimes with a great deal of venom, while various types of Afrocentric scholars rushed in to adapt and sometimes sort of mangle his work out of all recognition for their own purposes. So we end up with these two extreme positions which both caricatured Bernal's original claims. One saying, Bernal is wrong and there's no evidence for any black or African influence on Greek culture. And the other saying, you see, Africa is truly the cradle of civilization and the black man once ruled the world. A volume of essays attacking Black Athena appeared, and then Bernal responded with his own volume addressing the attacks. I use the word attack here advisedly because the essays in the volume Black Athena Revisited could actually be better titled Black Athena Attacked. Uh, there was also, of course, a lot of measured and quite sensible criticism of Bernal's work in the meantime, but the din of outrage tended to drown it out. Now, there's a few questions I'd like to put here. Is Bernal right to say that the 19th century enterprise of classics was a project hugely influenced by racism? And was he right to say that the Egyptians are an important key to the whole puzzle of Greek cultural origins? Because we've seen Neugebauer say, 
at least in the case of astronomy, mathematical astronomy, the, the Egyptians just weren't in the picture at all. Well, the answer to the first question is yes. The pure Aryan Greeks really were a fantasy. Um, now, Martin Bernal did not single-handedly destroy some monolithic racist classics enterprise. It was already pretty much consigned to the dustbin of history by the 1980s when he wrote. The work of Martin West and Walter Burkert, whom we mentioned above, and many others, has made the case for substantial Near Eastern influence on Greek culture pretty much right from the beginning of Greek culture. And their work has not been attacked with much venom at all. In fact, it's been quietly absorbed into classical scholarship. Partly, no doubt, because these were unimpeachably competent scholars with a knowledge of the cultures they were studying and the languages involved, while Bernal is often seen as something of a dilettante. But also, no doubt, because they didn't use scary words like black. But the legacy of the Hellenophile school is not dead. The point here is not that we're all racists if we only look to the Greeks for the story of Greek cultural development. That's kind of a stupid point to try to make. The point is that when the history of science school has shown us so clearly and kind of undeniably the debt that the Greeks owed to the Mesopotamians, in one particular field anyway, astronomy, how does this material end up being totally ignored in places like the classical civilization 101 class that you took at your local school? I know I did. I know that when I first learned about the Greeks in ancient history class in school, we, no one mentioned that they might have learned anything from the Babylonians. So the answer to this question is partly to do with the linguistic expertise and stuff like that. Obviously, more people know Latin and Greek than know Babylonian. But then again, this is precisely because our interests as, say, Europeans, writ broadly, have a tendency to focus on the people we see as historically European. And as we have seen, the story of European astronomy isn't a European story. It involves at least Asia. So Bernal's critique of the discipline of classics was and remains very timely and has a lot of truth in it. What about Africa? Let's talk about the Egyptians one more time before we finish. It's a great regret of mine that I've not yet learned Egyptian hieroglyphics because the Egyptians were a pretty mad and interesting civilization and it's really hard to separate fact from fantasy when you try to study them. For every sober assessment of the fragmentary evidence we have, we have a hundred works declaring the mystical powers of the Great Pyramid and the esoteric meaning of the Sphinx and the fact that the ancient Egyptians were harnessing anti-gravity and building their pyramids and you name it. And this kind of orientalist fascination with ancient Egypt goes all the way back to the Greeks. There was even an Egyptian tourist industry in Greco-Roman times where wealthy Greeks and Romans would do the tour and presumably be fed a bunch of nonsense about the mystical powers of the Great Pyramid and the esoteric meaning of the Sphinx and so on. So what can we make of Bernal's huge project of making Egyptian civilization central to the beginnings of Greek civilization? It seems to fly in the face of the work of our science-based scholars who note a lot of diffusion from Babylonia but nothing of significance from Egypt at least in the exact sciences. But then, Bernal's claim is not based in the exact sciences of mathematical astronomy, per se, but rather that the Greeks took from the Egyptians important religious customs, elements of early philosophy, and the science of geometry. Now, I myself can't say much about this claim because I'm not qualified, but I want to make my own use of it to create a kind of nice cliffhanger ending for this episode. So let's say for now, that we haven't finished with the ancient Egyptians by a long shot, nor with their appropriated image in the West. And the podcast will return to both of these in the not-too-distant future. But let's finish up for now and see if we've actually got anywhere in the course of this week's episode. 
In this and in the previous episode, we've tried to give some useful background when thinking about the historical position of Greek culture in the classical age, which is going to help us inform our coming discussions of the development of Western esoteric ideas in Greece and beyond. Certainly astronomy will be with us on that journey, as will the persistent orientalization of Near Eastern and North African peoples, including the wisdom of their ancient sages in many arts. Not only astronomy, but astrology, alchemy, theurgy, and a host of other esoteric pursuits. And we can now safely describe the Near Eastern origins of at least one science, astronomy, and assign it to the category of exoteric knowledge. It's no secret, even if it's secret history. For the story of astrology and the other esoteric arts, we will have a lot more exploration to do. So until next time, try to imitate the secret wisdom revealed to Hermes on the stele between the paws of the Sphinx, and stay esoteric.